We're in a section of Mark that probably could be most appropriately titled, Jesus Offends Everybody. Um, We, uh, you know, it's funny because I haven't talked the last couple of weeks and everybody's gotten up here and sort of lamented about how hard their passage is. And I don't feel like it's a contest, but if it was, I would win in terms of difficulty of passages. Uh, You know, a few weeks ago we talked about, uh, you know, Andy talked about uh, divorce and remarriage and Jesus said some really hard things. And then last week Corbin talked about uh, uh, the way we handle our money. Uh, But today I get to talk about your understanding of eternity and afterlife and uh, in particular, hell, which, you know, everybody's like, woo, like, I can't wait to talk about this. And, um, man, I, I feel like this might be the hardest because it's probably the least tangible and easily relatable. There's so many sort of cartoonish depictions of hell and culture. And, uh, you know, like, it's easy for us to wrap our mind a little bit about money and about marriage. But, uh, you know, hell is kind of a hard thing to really kind of wrap our minds around. Actually, let me take that back. I thought that until last night. Um, last night, we made the family decision to go to Ikea at like 7.30 p.m. Uh, my daughter's teething right now, and so we're just looking for like activities to get her out of the house. And uh, we were like, why don't we go to Ikea at 7.30, which is like the worst idea ever. And I'm walking through Ikea, and I'm seeing like marriages in the process of like dissolving right in front of my eyes. Um, you know, I'm, like there was just children screaming and crying everywhere in there. Like, it's against bedtime. I know 8 p.m. isn't late for a lot of you, but for any of you with kids, you're like, man, 8 p.m. Well, like they're out that late. And everybody's trying to get like their stuff because they don't want to make the pilgrimage to Ikea again like the next day. And uh, I just thought to myself, like I've descended into the pit of hell and have lived to tell about it. So um, I'm ready now. I'm ready to talk to you about hell. Uh, Before we jump into the text, let me just say this. I hope you understand that Jesus isn't just sort of being intentionally um, offensive for the sake of being offensive. Really, I don't know. Maybe here's kind of like, since we're talking about something really hard, let me ask a couple of favors for you in light of Jesus saying some really hard things. Maybe the first favor I would ask is you to open yourself up to the possibility that you actually need this in your life. And when I say this, I just mean somebody greater, wiser than you to speak into the areas of your life you can't simply understand through your own instincts or intuition. My observation is that American kind of culture, as we think about the afterlife and heaven and hell, for most of us, a lot of our beliefs are built off of kind of like, well, here's what makes the most sense to me. Uh, A lot of our beliefs are built off of like, well, I like to think that it would be this way, and so it is this way. And I think all of you in this room, even if I met for the very first time, um, are smart enough and are critical enough thinkers to be like, just because I want something to be a certain way doesn't mean that it is. And really, this is one of those areas where Jesus has been proving that he is the eternal God for nine chapters. And now, as the eternal God, is the one who's qualified alone to sort of break into our reality and speak into our understanding of eternity. And so maybe just sort of humble yourself just a little bit and understand this is where instincts and intuition fail. And you need somebody wiser outside of, your, outside of yourself to speak truth into your life. Maybe the second thing that I would challenge you with is to open yourself up to the possibility that you need this in particular this particular Sunday. Now, we referenced this earlier. This Sunday is Palm Sunday, and historically, it's when the church remembers that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, and it really, like, Palm Sunday can be remembered for a lot of reasons, but I think the biggest reason we need to remember it this particular Sunday is because it represents and reflects the fickleness of the human heart. That the same people that are crying out Hosanna because Jesus is entering in Jerusalem, they believe he's going to affirm sort of all of their cultural and personal preferences, are the same people who are crying out, crucify him, less than a week later. In the moment that he rubs against the cultural grain, the moment that he goes against their sort of own personal preferences. And, and we just have to be humble enough to recognize we have the exact same propensity. We have this propensity to sort of affirm Jesus when he affirms us. And it's like everybody loves Jesus when he's a good moral teacher who shows us how to live more fulfilled lives. But man, he, he starts saying really hard things about the afterlife and eternity. 
and we cry out, crucify him. And we may not literally crucify him, but we will, as a culture, put his teachings to death through saying things that we think are all sorts of clever, like, well, you know, anybody who's tolerant and educated and who really understands the Greek knows that Jesus didn't really say all of those things. And, and we're just going to see that he's very, very clear about some really, really hard things. But ultimately, it is for our joy to believe and receive. And, and really, this is kind of a lordship issue for a lot of you. Like, will you let Jesus be lord of your life and shape the areas of your life that are most important and most significant in a lot of ways most difficult and you can't figure out through your own intuition and instincts and so Jesus is going to be super uh, offensive to some of you but man I just think it's going to be really really good and we're going to see he's not just being offensive for the sake of offense he's being really really loving Um, and really here's kind of where we're going to go he's going to say two hard things okay he's going to speak against two particular aspects of culture that are really kind of instinctually like easy for us to believe but Jesus is going to reveal they're actually wrong okay so we're going to walk through each of these and I think we're going to have a good old time. All right, now the first, we'll do this quicker, okay? Because this is sort of an implication of the larger point that Jesus is making secondly. Uh, but first, Jesus pushes us to pursue unity because of the mission's severity. Jesus pushes us to pursue unity because of the mission's severity. So this is verses 38 through 41. It's an implication of what Jesus will say in verses 42 through 50. But basically, what Jesus is going to say in the second point is the seriousness of eternity. He's even going to lay out his own mission elsewhere in the Gospels where he says, the reason I came was to seek and to save those who are lost. Now, the point that Jesus is going to make then is because of the severity of that mission, we as Christians, we who are followers of Jesus, we who are part of the church, should fight to be unified with one another because of that mission's severity. Now, the way this question sort of comes up, if you start looking at verse 38, uh, and maybe for verse 38 and, and the next couple of verses, it makes sense. I want you to think back to when you were in school. I don't know if you can remember when you were back in school, but do you remember how in school there was always like that guy who always raised his hand to ask these like ridiculously long questions that usually were statements in the form of a question that kind of all had like kind of the, the, the motivation behind it of like, man, I'm going to ask this really great question or make this statement and the teacher is going to be like, why don't you get up and teach the class? Like, you're so brilliant, right? Like, all of you sort of wish that the teacher in that moment would, to that guy, would be like, stop it. That's not right, right? Like, you just kind of long for that. Uh, And that's basically what Jesus is going to do. John, one of the disciples, sort of asks a question like that and Jesus is just like, stop it. He does what we always long for the teacher to do. Now, look at uh, verse 38. John, who's one of the disciples, said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, at first, this is sort of presented like it was back in school, like this is a very legitimate sort of objection or question. John is deeply concerned with the integrity and the purity of the mission, but he says something, sort of tips us off that uh, he's not actually being kind, he's actually being quite dumb. Uh, If you look at the very end when he says, because he was not following us. Now, if he was saying we, he was not following you, Jesus, that would have been one thing. But the us reflects this isn't nobility as much as it is jealousy. Particularly when you read this passage in context, you remember what just immediately precedes it is like their inability, the disciples' inability to cast out demons because of a wrong relationship with Jesus. And we see kind of Mark is telling us like this guy is actually able to cast out demons. He is legitimately like believing and following Jesus. He is legit. And the disciples aren't sort of legitimately concerned as much as they are are jealous that they can't do the very thing that this guy is doing as well. This is criticism born out of their own insecurity. And Jesus doesn't sort of give in and affirm this criticism and this competitiveness. But look at how he responds in verses 39 through 41. But Jesus said, do not stop him. 
For no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon uh, will be able soon afterward to speak to you of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Again, we'll kind of, this will make a lot more sense once we get to the second point, but the point that Jesus is making is because of the mission's severity, we fight for unity. That's why he's saying if he's not against us, he is for us. And as he's pr- kind of aligning us to the seriousness of what we're taking part of, we, as a consequence, as the church and as Christians, fight for unity as well. You know, kind of be super brief with this. But, I mean, historically, this has always been the case. When people sort of understood there's really great and huge threats out there, really unlikely people have locked arms for the sake of unifying to overcome a great adversary. A really simple example of this is during the Second World War, where the USA and the USSR, the Soviet Union, kind of had nothing in common whatsoever. Prior to the Second World War, they like hated one another. FDR established a moral embargo on all things Soviet. I don't even know what that means, but he was just like, get that stuff out of there. And, and you know, it's really interesting. All of a sudden, Adolf Hitler rises to power. The Nazi regime is taking over much of Europe, and the US and USSR were like, we got to do this thing together. And they lock arms for a few years. Historically, they're called co-belligerents for the sake of overcoming a great adversary. Because of the mission severity, they fought for unity. Now, uh, that's not a perfect analogy, and it breaks down in all sorts of ways, but Jesus is challenging us in the exact same way to understand that as we take up the mission and the movement of God, this is not some sort of like hobby. It's not some sort of special interest. It's something not to be competitive about. This is not a fantasy football league, right? Like, if this thing was a fantasy football league, go ahead and be competitive because like a hundred bucks is on the line, right, and bragging rights with all of your buddies. This is not an art show. If it was an art show, it would be totally fine to be, like, super critiquing and critical and, like, well, I didn't particularly like this about this. No, it is a rescue mission. It is a movement to save that which is lost. And Jesus is going to say the ramifications for those who are lost are unbelievably, unbelievably serious. And, yeah, I think here's who he's calling it out. Is he's calling out those of you who are hyper-competitive and hyper-critical, and I won't just say those of you, but those of us as well. If anybody knows me, I'm like the most insanely critical and uh, particularly competitive person you will ever meet in your entire life. Like, man, I, I have enough self-awareness not to pretend. Like, you know, I don't like freak out on the basketball court when I lose like three-on-three, three, but like silently inside of me something is dying. I'm just like good enough to sort of like not let people see into that whatsoever. But man... I feel like in culture, there's sort of like a, a, a conservative mutation of this and a liberal mutation of this. Conservatively, there's a lot of you, I think particularly for those of you who have been to like Bible college or to seminary, I've been to seminary as well, and you're sort of trained up to be so hypercritical and sort of see heresy or theological error behind everything. And it's so easy to get so nitpicky and so nuanced. You reduce the kingdom of God down to like the four other people who affirm every other thing that you affirm as well. And I just tell you, like, the gates of hell are not pushed back by a kingdom of four people. And it's just like, again, this can be taken too far. What Jesus isn't saying is like to not be theologically thoughtful. He's not saying to like, oh, like, love heresy. Like, this guy's legit. He's just sort of manifesting his legitness slightly different than the way that John would prefer. And for a lot of you who are conservative, it's easy for you to sort of dismiss the entirety of somebody's ministry because they do something a little bit different than the way you would do it. 
And the really interesting thing is there's not just sort of a conservative manifestation of this, but there's a liberal manifestation of this, particularly for those of you who grew up in conservative environments who overreact against those conservative environments in which you pride yourself as not being as intolerant, as judgmental as all those intolerant, judgmental people over there, while in the process you're being incredibly intolerant and judgmental of those people. You're just being a Pharisee about Pharisees, which is still being Pharisaical. Man, and it's just like, I just meet some of you. I think this is probably more people in the life of the summit. Like, Denver doesn't, like, we're not a bastion of conservatism in Denver, right? And so, like, a lot of you sort of pride yourself of, like, oh, I'm not like those lame Christians. Like, I believe Jesus, but not like the majority of the other people. Let me put out on social media all the critiques and criticisms so all my non-Christian friends know that I think they're stupid. And, man, like, Christians do a lot of stupid stuff. But, man, do you want to really build, like, the predominance of your social media presence, you really want to build the entirety of your ministry around critiquing what other people do wrong? And everybody knows they're idiots. Like, you have a limited amount of energy, a limited amount of bandwidth, and I want to invest that for the sake of advancing the mission and saying what I'm for as opposed to just telling everybody what I'm against. Again, he's not saying, like, it's awesome that people are stupid in the name of Christ sometimes. Okay, and sometimes people need to be called on their crap. But man, we are way too critical. We exist in this culture where sort of cynicism and criticism and skepticism and competitiveness is praise. And Jesus is saying, like, this is the end of the fantasy football league. This isn't a craft beer tasting where you're like, well, you know, like, the, the hints of caramel were not slightly as much as I would have loved for them to be. This is a mission and movement to seek and to save the lost from really serious ramifications and implications, as Jesus is going to dive into as well. And because of that mission severity, then we fight for unity. Okay, now let's get into kind of the main thing that Jesus is going to go after and is really the the hardest thing that he's going to go after. Jesus pushes us to think eternally rather than temporarily about our lives. Jesus pushes us to think eternally rather than temporarily about our lives. We'll kind of get into the details of this so you don't get lost in the details. Kind of the big thing that Jesus is after is it's really easy for us. Even if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and you're like, man, I believe anything that Jesus says, even the hard things, it's still easy for you to naturally start thinking very, very temporarily about your existence, as opposed to seeing your life for what it really is, and Jesus is going to sort of confront you and recalibrate you to think long about your life, and, and longer than long, eternally, about your life as well. There's kind of five maybe subpoints of this that I just wanted to hit on for the sake of clarity. The first thing that Jesus says is that everyone lives forever somewhere. Everyone lives forever somewhere. And look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Now, what Jesus is after here, this is sort of a foundational point, is he's about the, he's saying, uh, or he's teaching about the eternality of humanity, that everybody lives forever somewhere. Uh, there are some of you who might believe, and there's a lot of people in culture who say, like, okay, you're born, and then you die, and then you die. It's like you're just done. It's just like a light switch being turned off. You're just out. And Jesus, like the one who made you, is telling you that's not the way it is. Actually, everybody lives forever somewhere. Now, he goes on to say this. There are two possible somewheres. There are only two possible somewheres. 
Now look at, he kind of gets to this at the latter part of the passage we just read. He talks about some who go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And then he repeats this idea again in verses 47 through 48. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God. So that's possibility number one. We might call it heaven. He here calls it the kingdom of God. He uses those terms interchangeably with one another. There's some who go to heaven or the kingdom of God. It's better to go to the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. So that's the other option as well. There's heaven and there is hell where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Now, he spends the majority of the time talking about hell here. Let me kind of unpack exactly what it is that he's saying. The word hell here is actually the word Gehenna in the Greek. It's a transliteration of two Hebrew words that actually uh, means Valley of Hinnom. This was a literal place. It was a deep valley. Uh, It was uh, south and west of Jerusalem. It was once a place of child sacrifice when the uh, pagan god Molech was kind of um, being falsely worshipped, as well as after kind of all that was put to death, uh, there was a garbage, and it became a garbage and sewage dump uh, for Jerusalem, a symbol of place of punishment uh, because worms and fires were always consuming the refuse. And then I'm just reading straight from one commentator just so you can get uh, this uh, super kind of clearly. Uh, One commentator says, Basically, the reason why Jesus is referring to the maggots that live and the corpses on the garbage heap uh, is when all the flesh is consumed, the maggots die. But Jesus is saying, however, in the spiritual decomposition of hell, it never ends. And that is why their worm does not die. And all this is kind of correcting some of the predominant theological error, theological thinking of the day that we as a church do not affirm. It's very popular today to hold to universalism that says that everybody goes to heaven. And the problem with that is Jesus doesn't affirm that. It's really popular today to hold something called annihilationism that believes that there's some who go to heaven and there's some who go to hell, but that hell is a very temporary experience. And the problem with that is Jesus goes kind of out of his way twice to be like, that's not the way it works. There's some who believe in escapism. Escapism would be something along the lines of like, there's some who go to hell, but then in hell there's sort of like a second chance. And the problem with that is like, Jesus just teaches against that. Man, I know it's hard. You know, like, uh, <laughs> like I get it. You know, I, I let me get to my third point, and I feel like um, I, I feel like maybe some of the tension and some of you are like, this is, I, I thought this was only in the backwoods place that I grew up. This type of belief, and it's like, well, no, we just believe Jesus. Like, he's just super clear here. Um, I don't know. Let, let me just correct one more theological thing that I say. I think a lot of times people like you, you kind of. We're kind of theologically nerdy out, but it's important here. Um, sometimes theologically what people will say is, well, because he's referencing a place outside of Jerusalem, he's being symbolic. And the way they kind of say that Jesus is being symbolic is almost like, oh, don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. I'd be like, what do you think it's symbolic of? Like a good place? Like, do you think he like got his symbols messed up? Like, yeah, there's probably some element of Jesus being symbolic here. But the reality of Jesus being symbolic for good things is he usually can't capture the goodness of the good things, so he has to use sort of symbols for it to make sense to our finite minds. And the same is true for really bad things as well. So we shouldn't be like, oh, sweet, he's being symbolic. We should actually be like, man, that sounds terrible, and he's trying to communicate something like incomprehensibly worse. And it's sort of the way that he can put it into our language today. All right, third. Jesus says these two destinations are natural implications of who God is and who we are, of who God is and who we are as well. And I get this. Like, I get that it's heavy, and I want to be, like, super kind and super 
empathetic. But I feel like kind of from the larger body of teaching, what you're getting are just basic implications. Heaven and hell are basic implications of who God is and who we are as well. Now, let's start with who God is. Now, my observation, I've had this conversation a number of times with people because this is a hard thing in a culture for people to wrap their minds around. My observation is for people who really push back against hell, they carry an underlying uh, presupposition of the smallness and the finiteness of God. Here's what I mean by that. It's kind of hard for them to comprehend, particularly in American spirituality. I know this is an overgeneralization. It probably isn't all of you, so don't kind of go hypercritical in your brain. But just generally, in American spirituality and culture, God is not sort of portrayed and worshipped and believed and even respected in the way that Jesus has like, revealed God to be and as he deserves to be in the first nine chapters of Mark, and he will for the last few chapters as well. Like, God is more like, he's not like the giver and author of life itself. It's not like he's, he's the one who gives you the very breath that fills up your lungs. It's not like he's the most important being in the universe. And we should be, like, wholly, like, blown away that he would desire any sort of interaction, interchange with us. Like, he, he's presented more like a golden retriever who's, like, a little bit dumb, very well-intentioned, sort of begs for you to like him back. And, like, is really bummed that you wouldn't be his buddy. Man, and it's just like Jesus for nine chapters has been revealing the astounding character and the nature of God. Our, our vision of God is usually far too small. He is the very author of life, and he is the one who spoke and made the beautiful creation that is, is around us and astounds us and is incomprehensible to us. He's the one who spoke and brought into existence. It is a serious thing to sin against a holy God. And that theme is almost on every single page of the scriptures. And here's what I think you know. Like, I think you understand that like, somebody's punishment runs directly proportional to the degree of significance that somebody possesses. I mean, think about this back when you were in school again. Like, and you knew this is how you worked. Like, think back to when you were in middle school. Like, think if when you were in middle school, I'll do it from a guy's perspective since I'm a guy. You punch your buddy in the stomach in between classes in middle school, you know what usually happened is people kind of laughed and they're like, well, boys will be boys. But what if you, like, instead of punching your buddy in the stomach, you punch your teacher in the stomach? People aren't laughing, but, like, you're being suspended. And what if instead of punching your buddy or your teacher, you actually punch the principal? Well, you're probably not being suspended. You're probably being expelled. And let's say, for example, like, your school back in middle school was one of those schools that the president of the United States visited because he wants to show he's concerned about education and the future of America, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. You know, he goes and he shows up, and you don't punch your buddy, teacher, or principal in the stomach, but you punch the president of the United States in the stomach. Nobody's laughing and being like, oh, boys will be boys. I mean, you're not even getting expelled. Like, you're going to prison. Even if you're 13 years old, you're going to prison, my friend. <laughs> After, like, a heap of Secret Service agents, like, pile upon your prepubescent body. <laughs> now, why is that? Because we all know, like, the degree of significance of a person has a direct correlation to the degree of punishment we incur. incur. I mean, if we know that works with our buddy and our teacher and our principal and our president, how much more is it true for the most important person and being in the universe who's incomprehensibly greater and far more superior than any of those people. When you regain a vision for the greatness and the glory of God, hell remains a very hard truth. 
but an understandable reality. But not just because of who God is, but it's also an implication of who we are as well. C.S. Lewis, he famously wrote, there are two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those whom God says, all right, then have it your way. And what we see over and over again is Jesus interacts with people as God in his justice is giving people the very thing they desired. And that in many ways, walking away from God is a self-chosen reality. I'm just going to read one pastor. I was going to paraphrase this because it's a longer quote, but then he like says it way better than I could ever say it. So I'm just going to read this. It's a longer quote, but it's from Tim Keller. who's a pastor in the city of uh, New York. And uh, he writes this. The idea of hell is implausible to people because they see it as unfair that infinite punishment would be meted out for comparably minor, finite false steps, like not embracing Christianity. Also, almost no one knows anyone, including themselves, that seem to be bad enough to merit hell. But the biblical teaching on hell answers both of those objections. First, it tells us that people only get in the afterlife what they have most wanted, either to have God as Savior and Master or to be their own Saviors and Masters. Secondly, it tells us that hell is a natural consequence. Even in this world, it is clear that self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness makes you miserable and blind. The more self-centered, self-absorbed, self-pitying, and self-justifiable people are, uh, the more breakdowns occur relationally, psychologically, and even physically. They also go deeper into denial about the source of their problems. On the other hand, a soul that has decided to center its life on God and his glory moves toward increasing joy and wholeness. We can see both of these trajectories even in this life. But if, as the Bible teaches, our souls will go on forever, then just imagine where these two kinds of souls will be in a billion years. Hell is simply one's freely chosen path going on forever. We wanted to get away from God, and God, as an infinite justice, sends us where we wanted to go. Yeah, that's why I didn't paraphrase it. Um, Fourth, Jesus says that while hell is real, eternal, and terrible, it is also escapable in this life. And here's the thing I really long for you. What I really long for you is rather than despair or rather than offense, what really everybody in this room, no matter what you believe about God, in light of these truths, what everybody in this room would feel is overwhelming wonder and appreciation that Jesus would take the punishment we deserve for our sin. That again and again and again, Jesus, throughout all these hard sayings and these hard sayings, they reveal our brokenness as perpetually bookending them by anticipating his death and resurrection. You see this at the end of Mark 8. Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. Again in Mark 9, 9. Again in Mark 30 through 32. Again in Mark 10, 32 through 34. Do you see what Jesus is doing? It's like true love, sacrificial love, costly love is emerging where it's like he is sounding the alarm and he's trying to wake us up to the realities that we so drowsily just sort of ignore and don't really think about whatsoever. He's waking us up and he's saying, hey, the bad news is really bad and it's really, really terrible, but here's the incredible news. What you deserve, I have taken in your place, and for any who believe and receive me, you will not be punished because I've been punished in your place. And it makes me think about, so I came across this story this past week. It's like, uh, in the early 1900s, there was this guy named Jesus Garcia, and this guy was a railroad engineer, and he was helping a train, it was a train of dynamite actually, get from uh, Mexico up into Arizona. And they stop in this small Mexican village, and as they're taking a break there, they're on the tracks, 
they're sitting on the tracks, and he goes to, like, around to inspect the train as everybody's kind of getting a drink and everything. And uh, he notices that the sparks on the track have sparked up and caught uh, some of the cars that are holding this dynamite on fire. And so he kind of, like, takes a second to observe this situation, and then he just starts screaming to everybody, like, get out, get out. Like, the fuses have been lit. And then you know what he does? It's one of the most, like, amazing things ever in history. He jumps into the conductor's chair, he starts the train, and he starts driving that thing away from that town as quickly as possible because he knows it's going to kill everybody in its wake. And he gets 10 miles away, and then kaboom. The ripples were still fell all the way back, even from 10 miles away. And he died, but everybody else lived. The town has actually been renamed in his honor. And it's like, this is kind of what Jesus is doing in this moment. It's like the fuse has been lit Hell is real. Eternal consequences are serious. It's a serious thing to sin against a holy God, but I will die so that you might live. And for anybody who looks for me, to me as Savior instead of tries to play Savior of their own life, like they will be saved. And the cross of Christ, the just wrath of God is poured out on Jesus instead of us. Jesus is more than a good moral teacher, although he was that. But he first and foremost came to be a savior and to save us from the most serious ramifications of sin, death and hell. Fifth, Jesus says, in light of these eternal realities, in the present we live differently. In light of these eternal realities, in the present we live differently. Now look at what he says. We're going to look at verses 45 through 48, uh, revisit part of this again. He says, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Basically what Jesus is doing is he's zooming us out and he's helping us think like very, very big about our lives. And he's saying, now that I have corrected your temporary thinking about your life, how are you going to live differently in the temporary in light of these eternal realities? And I don't know. Like I tried to think all week of how you visualize this. This is kind of like a classic illustration, so maybe you've seen it before. Um, but I don't know if everybody can see this since you're sitting down. But everybody knows there's a stage up here. And I want you to imagine the stage almost like at the timeline of your life, except that end of the stage actually goes on forever. We don't have that because Andy would kill me for that construction project. Um, but you just imagine this as a timeline, and so like that end goes on forever. That's what Jesus is saying. is like your timeline, it goes on forever. Now, I want you to think about this sticky note as what you typically think of as your life. This is when you were born, and this is when you'll die. Now, I'll put this over here just so you can visualize this somewhat here. Now, the point that Jesus is making here is it's the fool who basically is focused only on this at the expense of all of this and that that goes on forever. And yet, that's the way that the vast majority of you naturally think. Like, all you're concerned about is this little part of your life, and this is all that you can see. And there's some of you in this room that are like, man, you know what, I don't really have any time for Jesus whatsoever because I'm trying to kill it at work right here so that I can retire right here so I can enjoy the best years of my life. There's some of you 
who like, have the exact opposite mentality. Denver, in particular, attracts the exact opposite mentality where it's like, I don't want anything to do with Jesus because like, if I'm just honest, I'll have conversations with people like this. They're like, I'm just enjoying sin too much right now. They won't put it that way, but it's like, man, like, I'll get to Jesus later. But it, like, right now, I'm just enjoying living like, a highly rebellious, disobedient life that I know isn't really good for me, but it's actually a whole lot of fun as well. And like, these are the best years of my life, and I don't really care. You know, maybe I'll get to that later, but a lot of times you know, the vast majority of people don't get to it whatsoever because of the very principle that Kelly talked about, that we're on a trajectory for the entirety of our lives. And some of you will ignore Jesus altogether and you sort of justify it by the difficulty of this, right? Like some of you are like, I'm going to date and marry a guy here that will in no way encourage me to love Jesus because you don't understand how hard it is. I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. And Jesus is like, man, it's the, it's the fool who ignores all of this at the expense of that. And it's the wise man, it's the wise woman who invests this to reap rewards for all of eternity. Man. Everybody lives forever somewhere. And I'm not saying that because I'm like some sort of cold, callous, conservative fundamentalist. It's because I'm a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. And I care about this because all of you in this room will live forever somewhere. And so let me just ask you a couple of questions and they'll be done. The first, I almost don't want to ask this question because I have so many images of like guys on college campuses awkwardly asking people this. And it's like, but it's like, but man, like are you certain of where you'll spend eternity? Like for any of you who grew up in a conservative environment whatsoever, you bristle at the very fact that I would ask that question. For those of you who are new to church, you're like, what's the big deal? That's a legitimate question. Exactly, okay? But for those of you who are conservative, just tone it down a little bit, okay? And Jesus is saying everybody lives forever somewhere. There are two potential somewheres that you live. And are you sure that you'll go to the good place as opposed to the bad place? And here's all you need in order to have certainty about this is you need to confess your sin against God. You need to accept Jesus as the one who saves you from your sin against God. And you need to walk in obedience and following Jesus who is now not just your Savior, but also your Lord. Like, I know it seems super simple. You're like, oh, it's that easy? It's easy for you. It wasn't easy for Jesus who got crucified in your place. That's the whole point of grace. He does for you what you don't have to do anymore. And it's the fool who ignores that in this, when it reaps an eternal reward for all of life. So I'll just ask you that question. Secondly, I would just ask you the question in light of what Jesus says right here. Is there something you need to cut off for the sake of enjoying and receiving eternal life? Like, the language here that Jesus is using about, like, plucking out eyes and cutting off limbs, you're like, whoa, settle down a little bit. But he's being, again, he's being symbolic to communicate a larger truth that is hard for us to comprehend. Now, I thought about this all week. Like, we don't do this, right? We don't exist in a culture where we just sort of cut off limbs. 
Um, but I do know a culture where this does happen, The Walking Dead. Now, I don't know if any of you watch The Walking Dead whatsoever, but if you do watch The Walking Dead, or if you kind of know anything about zombies whatsoever, you know this is like a really simple principle where, like, you know, they go into the Walmart to go on a supply run, and then, like, some idiot's like, well, surely I won't get bit like everybody else I know, and they're, like, reaching in the back, and they're like, let me try to grab the peaches in the very back here. And then you know how this goes, right? Like, zombie out of nowhere bites the arm, and all of a sudden, the disease of death is in them. And if they don't get it out of them, they're going to die in about five minutes. You know what they do in that moment? They're not like, well, you know, I really love my arm. And they're not even like, man, could you cut this thing off like here? Could I get as close to the bite as possible as opposed? They're like, cut that thing off. Get that out of there. I'm going to die if you don't get this thing off of my body. That's the point that Jesus is making is there's a lot of you in this room who play with things and you get as close to sin as possible and it sort of chronically brings you in and it's keeping you away from your Savior and you're just sort of playing with the disease of death, not just in this life but the life to come. And I would just lovingly say to you, receive the wisdom of the walking dead and cut that thing off, right? Just cut that thing off. Like there might just be relationships you have to end There might be jobs that you just have to end. There might be circles of friends that produce cynicism and competitiveness and unhealth in you that you just have to end. But man, it's the wise man or woman who rightly invests this for the sake of all this. And it's the fool who sort of plays around with a bite that's going to kill them. We have all been bitten with the disease of sin. And it will reap the ramifications of death, not just in this life, but the life to come. But Jesus Christ, out of his grace and love and mercy in your place, died for you so that you, he might be treated in the way you deserve to be treated. So you will be treated in the way he earned for you to be treated. And it's the great exchange of the gospel that not if you have enough pride, not if you have enough willpower, not if you have enough obedience, but if you will have enough humility to confess your brokenness, to turn away from your sin, to turn to Jesus, there will be rewards for you, not just in this life, but the life to come as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you. Um, I thank you for like really pushing us as a church to teach through hard things. And uh, we will not be cowards. And we will not simply mirror the culture. We will mirror you to the culture. And so I just pray, um, I don't know, I just pray first and foremost that uh, anybody in this room who thinks like I'm arrogant about this or callous about this would in some way know the degree of like weightiness and brokenness I feel over this. Um, Just humble all of us who who want a million different reasons why you didn't mean what you clearly said. And I pray that we would expend all those energies not in uh, pushing back or trying to find some blog that affirms what we already believe, but instead in receiving this as hard good news to turn away from sin, to turn to you. And even if we've done that, to really start to see other people around us through the lens of eternity. And to know not only us, but the people around us will all spend forever somewhere. And so this is not a game. This is the most serious thing we could ever give our lives to, and I pray that we would think this way. And um, just love you. Pray that we respond correctly. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.